Good morning to each one. Greetings in Jesus' name. It's good to be here and worship the Lord with you this morning. This is the first I preached here at Peak since we were ordained. And some thoughts went through my mind when we were when we were ordained, we were as you know, Dave and I were in a lot together. And Dave's were assigned here and we were assigned at bank. But going into that, we didn't know where we'd be assigned, so it's a joy to serve at the bank and also worship with you here this morning. So I know a lot of you and I trust that we can continue to grow together in the knowledge and likeness of Christ. For the message this morning, you can turn with me for a sermon text to John chapter 5. Titled the message, I and my Father are one. And as we, I want to start reading at verse 16. But this morning I want to talk on the Trinity. The word Trinity comes from tri, meaning three, and unity, meaning one. God is three distinct individuals. We have God the Father, the Son Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. So here in this passage, I want to read from John chapter 5. Notice, notice the oneness that Jesus and the Father have. And then later on, I want to look at some verses to pull in the, the Holy Spirit as well. I'll give you a little background for this passage. This chapter begins with the healing of the invalid man who was sick for 38 years. And we know that it happened on the Sabbath day. Jesus told this man to take up his bed and walk. And the religious leaders met this man carrying his bed and said, what are you doing carrying your bed on the Sabbath? And the man replied, he said, the man that healed me said to take up my bed and go home. And in the latter part of this chapter, Jesus is talking to those religious leaders who had rejected him for the most part. He tells them some very important things for us to see in this passage. Things that are important for us to know as it relates to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Verse 16, John chapter 5. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him. Because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead, and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. That all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father, which hath sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word, 
and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. I'll stop reading there. This passage begins that telling us, by telling us that because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews were persecuting him. In verse 17, Jesus tells them, My Father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. The Jews knew that the Sabbath was given to the children of Israel that they might keep holy unto the Lord. The Jews also knew that God himself did not rest on the Sabbath. The only reference we have of God resting is after the creation, after the sixth day of creation, God rested on the seventh. He rested from the work he had done. It means he rested from his created work. He called that day holy and then told his people to rest on the Sabbath. An interesting point about the Sabbath is that we learn that we learn from Jesus is the Sabbath was made for man and man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. It was to be a day of rest for man. But God doesn't rest. God doesn't need any rest. He spoke to the nation of Israel through the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you not know, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't grow tired or weary. He doesn't need rest. I'm thankful this morning that God is on call 365, 24-7. He is always working. Wouldn't it be awful to have some tragedy come into our lives and it would happen to be God's day off? So I will pray now and God will get the message later when he comes back on duty. It is comforting to, not, comforting to know that God is always there. He is always available. He is always ready to hear your prayer. He is always ready to respond. It doesn't matter what day it is. God is always ready. And God is all-powerful. And he can deal with your issue at any time. Jesus says here, my father is working. He is working right up until this day. Then he makes another statement in the last part of verse 17. He says, my father worketh hitherto. And he says, I too am working. Jesus would say something that is true about God. And then he would apply that same thing to himself. 
Notice the connection between the Father and the Son. If you notice, Jesus will do that repeatedly throughout this chapter. It made the Jews outraged at him. It made them look around and look for rocks. It made them want to kill him. And here Jesus makes a correlation between the work of the Father, the prerogatives of the Father, the will of the Father, the power of the Father, and his very own. He says, I too am working. The Jews had no trouble catching his meaning. Because in verse 18 it says, he tried, they tried all the harder to kill him. In their minds, not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was also calling God his own father. Thus making himself equal with God. The Jews knew what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, I am equal with God the Father. And he did it in several ways. Not only did he call God his Father, but in this context, he is essentially saying the Sabbath was made for man. The Sabbath regulations don't apply to God. God works on the Sabbath, and I work on the Sabbath. In essence, he is exalting himself above the Sabbath regulation as God is exalted above the Sabbath re regulation. God works on the Sabbath, and I too work on the Sabbath. Verse 19, Jesus keeps going. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. It says the Son can do nothing of himself. Jesus, having stated the extent of his authority, proceeds here to show its source and nature. And to prove to them that what he had said was true. The first explanation which he gives is in these words, the son whom he had just implied affirmed to be equal with God did nothing of himself, that is nothing without the appointment of the father. Nothing contrary to the father. As he immediately explains it, when it is said he can do nothing of himself. The union between the father and the son is that the son can do nothing independently or separate from the father. John 10.30 says, I and my Father are one. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth, and he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. Here we have the relationship. The Father loves the Son. The Father and the Son do not have a master-slave relationship. It's a love relationship. That is why there is a willingness and openness. To you married couples, the relationship of the father and son has an interesting correlation with the relationship between the husband and wife. Because Jesus said, there is a love relationship between me and the father. And because of that loving relationship, I have willingly subordinated myself to him. Not because of inferiority or inequality, but because of love. Because of a choice, and that is essentially the same role a woman is called to take alongside of her husband. 
On what basis is a woman to, to submit to her husband? Out of a love relationship. In the same way, the man is to offer up his life in a sacrificial act of love toward his wife. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's to be that love relationship that governs everything that they do. Love is what governs the relationship of the father and the son. The father loves the son and shows him all that he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. The things that Jesus does are things that the Father is doing. And Jesus says there are even greater things in store. And in verse 21, he tells us what those greater things are. For just as the Father raised the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. It's in the NIV. Here we have another correlation. Between the Father and the Son. A connecting point between the Father and the Son. Jesus makes a statement about the Father, and then he correlates that to the nature and the prerogatives of the Son. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so, or in like manner, Jesus says the Son also gives life to whom he pleases. Here Jesus is making a clear declaration of his deity. No one else can say that. No one else can say as the Father gives life, I give life. Jesus uses the work of the resurrection as an example of the shared work of the Father and the Son. Here the Son has the power and authority to raise the dead and give life to them just as the Father does. The religious leaders didn't want to think much about Jesus' ability to heal a paralytic. They focused on him as a Sabbath breaker. You see where their focus was? Yet the power of Jesus went far beyond the power to heal. Verse 22, we have another correlation. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. So just as the Son has been given the right to give life and give it to whomever he pleases... He also is given the right to judge. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. The Father and Son are so intertwined that the honor of one is the honor of the other. All these things Jesus is connecting between himself and his heavenly Father. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Jesus has already declared that he exercises the prerogative of deity, giving life to whomever he will, expressing judgment and the judgment of God. It's all been committed into his hands. He already told us that to honor him is to honor his father and the other way around. Now he takes it a step further and says, this ability to extend life, which he himself has. 
And the working of that, of that is already functioning in whose lives? It tells us here in verse 24, in the lives of those who hear his words and believe that it was the Father who sent me. Notice the words are present tense. This person has already passed from death to life. Jesus explained to these religious leaders that those who hear his word would have everlasting life. They would have the life connected with eternity and have that life now. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8 verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Satan would have us condemned. If he can get you to feel condemned, if he can get you to feel like God doesn't love you anymore, then he can get you to walk away from God. And people may try to condemn you as well. God will convict you and I of sin. What did Jesus tell the woman who was caught in adultery? She was caught in the very act. What did he tell her? The scribes and Pharisees brought her to Jesus, tempting him. They said, Moses in the law says someone like her should be stoned, but what do you say? Let's turn to John chapter 8. Read those verses. John chapter 8, verse 6. This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him cast, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted, by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Not only did he not condemn her, but he told her to go and sin no more. That's a challenge for me as well. All right, back in John 5, verse 24, it says, He that heareth my word. Here Jesus said that hearing his word and believes in the Father. For he said that those that hear his word and believes in the Father believes in him who sent me is the path to everlasting life. Hear my word and have everlasting life. It also says, but is passed from death unto life. Has changed his place of abode. From death unto life. From darkness to light. One aspect that is essential 
to everlasting life, to escape judgment for sin and to pass from the position of death to the position of life. Death is where the person who is without Christ lives. To live in sin is to live in death. And those who live and die in that state die eternally. I tell you the truth, the time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. What is Jesus talking about here? I believe this verse is talking about spiritual death and the spiritual resurrection that takes place when we come to Christ and accept Him as Lord and Savior of our lives. Notice again in verse 25, I tell you the truth, the time is coming. Notice this phrase, and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. It says this time has now come. It's happening now, present tense. I don't believe this verse is talking about the physical resurrection when people come out of their graves. Cross-references, Ephesians 5.14, Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Now drop down to verse 28, and we'll talk about physical resurrection. Do not be amazed at this, for time is coming, when all who are in the, their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. There's a qualification there. It says that time is coming. But it has not yet come. The time has not come when they will come out of their graves. But there is also a time coming, in fact it is here, when there are those who will hear the voice of the Son of Man and live. We can have that life now in Christ. I hope that all of you who have reached the age of accountability have been raised to life spiritually. You were spiritually dead and I trust that today you are spiritually alive in Him and have passed from death into life. Now let's back up, pick up verses 26 and 27. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself, and He has given Him authority to judge because He is the Son of Man. Here Jesus reiterates, as the Father has life, the Son hath life. As the Father has the ultimate right to judge, he has given it to the Son. The Son will judge all things because He has been given authority to judge. And then in verse 30. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself but Him who sent me. This verse is important. Jesus declares that He can do nothing apart from the Father. When Jesus says here that by myself I can do nothing, he is saying two things. First of all, he is saying he is completely surrendered to the will of the Father. Do you have that level of surrender this morning? Jesus is saying, I have chosen to do nothing but the perfect will of my Father. There is no sinful nature that gets in the way of the desire to do God's will and the carrying out of it. Remember, Jesus is without sin. Each of us have that sinful nature that stands between our desire and carrying out the will of God. 
Even though the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. We want to do what is right. But the sinful nature rises up and gets in between God's will and the carrying out of that will from time to time. Jesus had no sinful nature to deal with. There was nothing standing between his choice and to do God's will and carrying it out. Jesus is saying, I always do the will of my Father. In fact, I can do nothing apart from the Father. The second thing I see here is this passage is a personal unity and an interconnectedness with the Father that creates a perfect harmony of their will. There is nothing between God, the Father, and God the Son that would create any difference of intent and desire. We need to understand that the persons of the Godhead think and move and work in perfect total harmony. There is no dissension in the persons of the Godhead. The last part of this verse says, I judge only as I hear. Verse 30. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Jesus says in this statement that his judgments are perfectly fair and impartial. He gives two reasons for this. First one is judge only as I hear, or as I hear, I judge. Here we have Jesus speaking from the perspective of the Son of Man because he is so perfectly connected in harmony, indeed, in thought with the Father. The judgments I make come from the wealth of wisdom of God Almighty, the perfect understanding of God Almighty. They are perfect in their judgment. As believers, you and I have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That means the wisdom of God and the mind of Christ is ours. It's available to us. Paul tells us we have the mind of Christ. The second thing I see in this verse is, I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. This is the key for us to live our lives in Christ every day. There is nothing in him that desires pleasing himself over pleasing his Father. Jesus said, I didn't come here to serve myself. I came here to serve my Father. I came to do the will of my Father. And that's a challenge for me. Jesus is also a model for us to look at and pattern our lives after. Jesus gives us the perfect example. I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. All right, we, looked, we talked about the Father and the Son. Now I want to look at the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. I want to read you Article 2 in our Statement of Faith. It says, we believe that there is but one God, eternal, infinite, perfect, and unchangeable, who exists and reveals himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now I want to look at some passages that talk about the Holy Spirit. 
First one is John 12. I'm sorry, John 16, verse 12 and 13. John 16, verses 12 and 13. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Jesus is telling them, I have much to say to you. He is presenting to his disciples a problem. I want to tell you more. But you just can't bear it now. He goes on to tell them that he has outlined a solution for this issue. He says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you and lead you into all truth. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus is referring to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which would take place after his death, burial, and resurrection. He then would be given to the disciples to live in their hearts. We call this the indwelling presence of God's Holy Spirit. Jesus made this distinction about this time the Spirit would come into the lives. I'm sorry, would come to live in their hearts. John 14 verse 17, Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, For he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Two key words I'd like to point out in this verse. Two prepositions, with and end. Jesus said to his disciples, right now the Holy Spirit is with you. But in the future, he will be in you, but he's not yet. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit did come upon people, anointing them for a specific task or purpose in the Old Testament nobody had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit because Jesus had not yet died to pay the price for man's sin thus cleansing the vessel so the Spirit spirit could come in and reside light cannot be where darkness is in our lives before Christ in our lives before Christ we were forgiven of our sin For before we were forgiven of sin, we were full of darkness. But he came and cleansed us by his spirit, enabling the spirit now to come into our lives to indwell us. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit dwells within all believers. It assures them that they are children of God. It enables them to live the Christian life. And gifts them for Christian service. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So when did the Holy Spirit first come and indwell or to live inside believers? It's recorded for us in John chapter 20. Let's turn to that. John chapter 20, verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, 
came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. It says he breathed on them. I hadn't made this connection before I studied this, but what took place in creation when man first became man, became a human being, in the book of Genesis. It says in Genesis that God created man out of the dust of the earth, but he was lifeless. The Bible tells us God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Body, soul, and spirit, that which was connected to God. The spiritual part died when sin came into the world. When sin came into the equation, and man was separated from God. This is why Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, It's not enough for you to be born. You must be born again. You must be given new birth. Jesus officiated at the first moving of the Spirit when he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. That's the connection I hadn't made before. thought that was interesting. John 16, verse 13. Howbeit, when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into all truth. It's the Spirit of God who leads us into all truth. He is the one who teaches. He is the one who gives us understanding. He is the one who opens our hearts to understanding the things of God. He illuminates. A light illuminates a dark room so you can see what you're doing. The Spirit of God illuminates God's Word so that we can understand it. Before we received the Spirit, we were in the dark and couldn't figure things out. Jesus also referred to the Holy Spirit as a comforter, as the comforter or the counselor. This title conveys the idea of advising, exhorting, comforting, strengthening, interceding, and encouraging. And in that list, we can do that for each other. We can encourage each other. We can exhort. We can advise. We can strengthen. We can intercede. And we can encourage. The Bible makes it clear that the Holy Spirit is God Himself. In Acts 5, a man who lied to the Holy Spirit is said to have lied to God. Acts 5.3, But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Here Peter is very clearly confronting Ananias with lying to the Holy Spirit. Also in Ephesians 4.30 it says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. To grieve means to suffer grief or to sadden, to make sad. So Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus and saying, Don't sadden the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The day of redemption is that future day 
when we will all be resurrected, when we'll be changed and received, receive our resurrected bodies. Two verses in closing, Philippians 3, 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able, even to subdue all things to himself. So may the Lord bless each of you as you serve him where he has called you.